I was in the meeting where they told her, just do it. Like, your complaint's been heard, but this is the only option. You've got to do it. And we kind of left that meeting going, what has happened? Like, where have their ethics gone? This money and you've got to do it ethically and transparently. And, and so I felt like I had no choice. I had to go in. I kind of executed a whistleblowing exercise, which was really difficult because I was basically reporting my boss, all of the leaders that I really respected. But I really felt like this was the only way to stop this happening. Monday, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong. Joining me today is Emma Anderson. She's an industry expert in payments, the work that happens behind the scenes when you buy something online or with a card. I'll let Emma herself tell you a little more about the type of work she does. So most of us now are used to using contactless. So you probably have it on your phone, Apple Pay, you've got your Apple Watch, Samsung Pay. We use this like contactless technology. Every day, especially during COVID. Yeah, right? Well, that actually was launched in 2007 by Barclays. The biggest thing that the payments industry spends most of its time working on is how do we make payments secure? How do we make them safe so that you're protected so other people can't get your credentials and use them and prevent fraud? So 2007 is actually like a critical year in the world of payments. And I think God was amazing that he put me there at that time. So Barclays does huge amounts in aviation, like lots of payments for all of the airline industries. So just as a consumer, I remember that time when there was like booking.com and like, wow, you don't have to go through a travel agent anymore. You could actually go online, you can search your own ticket and you can pay. So where does Barclays come into the picture and where does what you are doing part of this entire picture? So what you're talking about there is like online payments. So online payments is the, basically, if you, if you think about it, all you're doing is you're kind of entering your card details into a website and that is then being processed behind the scenes. So the first thing that we do is we have to authorize that payment. So we'll go and check your account, say through Visa, Say it's a HSBC Visa card that you're using. So as the acquirer, we would go to Visa. Visa would then go to HSBC. HSBC would check in your account. They go, yeah, she's got enough money for that flight. So and the acquirer means that they're the... Payment processor. They provide the ability to do that payment processing. Yeah. They would put a little tag on it to say, don't spend it twice. <laughs> you know, And then they send a message back to Visa. Visa would send it back to Barclays and say, yeah, she's got plenty of money. And then we would then send a message to say BA or, or booking.com or whatever and say, yeah, she's fine. So you get an authorized message and then your ticket can then be issued. And then in the background, we would then actually go and physically go and get that money. Today, Emma is the head of solutions delivery at Planet Group, a financial payments group based in Ireland. And while you may not have heard of this company, you've probably unknowingly used one of its products or services because they're involved with the transactions of over 600,000 merchants in 70 markets like Starbucks, Adidas, and Kate Spade. So how did Emma get into the payments industry? The story might surprise you. For a long time, she felt called to be a medical missionary, but that didn't work out. And as we get into that story, I want you to think about how what you are doing today or may be doing in the future may not be what you had envisioned. That's okay. Oftentimes we go through our day, but we don't notice the business side of things or even the work and career opportunities that life can provide. Emma got into payments, but never could have imagined doing this growing up. 
She was born in Nottingham, England, but moved to France at the age of five because her parents were missionaries. My parents were really poor. One of the big values in our family was we lived by faith. And what that practically meant was dad didn't have like a regular income. It wasn't like he had a paycheck coming in. We were supported by people back in the UK from our home church. So you grew up knowing the faith, knowing that this is your parents' profession. Faith wasn't like something we did at the weekend. It was like a, it was an immersive, it was like the core family value. Our home was very open. I just loved Sundays because we would go to church and then we'd almost just pick up whoever was, you know, left on their own and they would come back and the French love to eat. And so everybody would just bring a dish or bring something. And so our family dinner table was just filled with different people with different stories and different places. We were very much told to look outwards and see, see ourselves as people that were there to like help others. We're there to change the world. You know, it was very missional. It was never about money. My dad was a man who loved books, who loved reading. And so as children, we were read a lot of stories, you know, these great people that went and changed the world, people that set up orphanages or people that transformed the medical. And so for me, my head was just full of adventures of people that went to Africa or the Congo or to Latin America or China. So um, I think um, those stories of missionaries kind of filled my mind as a kid. um, And I wanted to see how I could do that. But I was very academic. I really enjoyed learning. And so I got really good grades and it kind of continued to kind of fuel my ambition where I was like, actually, maybe I could do medicine. Maybe I could become a doctor. Maybe I could kind of marry the faith and profession piece too. And thankfully, I got the grades to um, go to medical school. University of Birmingham is like probably one of the top five medical schools in the UK. I just remember it was so emotional, you know, getting called, going to the interviews, you know, and then receiving that letter saying, you're good enough, you know, you've got the grades and then you get to go. And I was very, very excited. I just felt that, that God had really opened those doors for me to go to university. So in the US, you've got to go and do like an undergraduate degree before you can then go and do a, a medical, like do that part. So in the UK, it's a five-year degree course that you do. Three years of it is very much in the university, like just very much academic, lots of exams, theory and learning And then you have like a two year part then where you're kind of mixed between being in the hospitals, being in the community, being out with the GPs. At the end of that five years, then you're qualified as a doctor. So just turning 20, you started this five year program to become a doctor. What happened when you got into the studying of medicine and and this path? One of the things is I realized that my learning style was very different from what I had thought it to be. So I'm a real kinesthetic learner. I'm really experiential. I really like to have the dialogue, the conversation. I like to figure it out. I like to touch and figure things through, even like concepts. I need to have that debated. Sitting in an auditorium with 250 other students with a lecturer at the front, this is before we would have 3D models. This is before, you know, computer. This is like back in the early 2000s. People don't realize, remember how bad IT was. You know, we were learning out textbooks. And what normally that happens is you go into the anatomy bays and, you know, if you're learning about the the leg, you're there dissecting a leg and you're seeing the muscles and you're seeing the veins. That for me is fantastic. The year that I went, they they had forecasted there'd be a shortage of doctors coming up by the junior doctors by the mid 2000s. And so they doubled our intake in one year. So we go from having almost like a day every two weeks where we're kind of reinforcing that learning to suddenly having two hours every month and it's like eight people around a body and you're not doing any of it you're just looking 
which for me just was the worst experience um, because it just suddenly I was trying to learn what's happening in a 3D inter internally in a 3D person in a 2D like textbook and you're just reading and what I realized that for me is just reading information it kind of goes one in one ear and out the other my first year I failed the anatomy I had to retake it in the summer I did started my second year I failed anatomy and another kind of uh, physiology course that was connected um, had to take an entire year off because I failed the retakes to then take it again. So that was like year three, I was redoing my second year and then working part-time, working as a medical secretary while retaking the exams. One of the things that um, I learned, I was very arrogant. I'd never really struggled, I'd never failed anything. I didn't know how to fail and recover from a failure, if that made sense. It's almost like I didn't know how to handle that kind of situation. I just thought work harder, do longer hours, but I, it didn't ever occur to me that I just needed to learn differently and never explored alternative options. We just got to the point where the Dean of Medicine called me in and just said, Emma, I'm sorry, you've kind of had the maximum opportunities to kind of demonstrate you can do this. So when the Dean of Medicine told you that this isn't going to work, you also were starting to doubt and reconsider. I'd also by then developed this fear. So one of the ways that they examine you with anatomy is they have a panel of doctors and they just fire questions at you. And what was happening, what I developed was a real terror of like those kind of environments, because you know what you're like, if you're relaxed, you can recall information quite easily. But when you're really stressed, it's very difficult. And unless you really know that subject matter, it, you really struggle. And I would just go blank and I would just fumble my way through those exams. And they're not being cruel. The reason they're doing that is doctors have to be able to perform excellently under extreme pressure. When you've got somebody's life in your hand, you can't afford to go blank in that situation. I didn't object to that process at all. I totally understood why that was an important part of the training. Um, but it just, for me, in this subject matter, it just had a catastrophic effect that even if I did know it before I went in the room in that environment, I would just lose it. Then I started to think about, I also didn't have the mental resilience to be able to cope with the idea that I could kill somebody. As you're going through medicine, one of the things that you start working through, as well as all the ethical challenges you'll be facing, all of the responsibilities, you're basically, they're training you to be a leader, uh, to lead a medical team and also how to deal in these extreme scenarios. Um, and one of the things I realized was, what if I was the cause of somebody's death because I misdiagnosed or if I um, accidentally killed somebody because I didn't do a procedure correctly. And that started really weighing heavily on me in terms of could I live with that consequence. So I think by the time the Dean of Medicine came and said, I don't think this is for you, I had kind of got to that point of saying, not only do I, do I know that I'm really struggling with the anatomy part of medicine, also could I live with myself if I had done something because I hadn't got the skill base to back it up that would cause somebody to die, could I live with that? And I was starting to wrestle with I'm not sure that I could. So this was fourth year. You wanted to become that medical missionary that you felt called to. You really felt like that's what God put in your heart. And I felt like God had opened the doors. Where was your faith in all this? The biggest issue for me is I felt like I'd failed God. Like somehow I had failed the calling that he had for my life. That somehow I had messed it up. That I'd really let him down. It was such a painful time because I was doubting my capability. I never doubted him. I felt it was more like my response to him, you know, and um, I felt like he'd done his part. He'd got me there. He'd given me all the opportunities, the education, fantastic environment, fantastic medical school. And it was just me that wasn't able to use the tools. And so I felt like a complete failure. 
And so what happened? When I went to university, I found a really fantastic environment, um, a faith community to be part of. And, um, you know, I went to them with that brokenness and said, you know, I feel like I fail God. And I just remember one of the women said to me, don't you think that God knew you were always going to fail? It never had occurred to me. And she was like, but he knew you were going to fail that course. So maybe you coming to Birmingham and studying medicine had nothing to do with you getting that degree. And that just, that blew my mind. <laughs> and it just opened an entirely new perspective on the world to me um, and my relationship with God, that it wasn't like he set me a task and I had to achieve it. And then I had this calling and I had to do it. It then suddenly transformed the way I saw my calling, which was to become more like Jesus, to become more like the person that God's calling me to be wherever he's placed me in the world. So I think university was a really important time where God kind of changed my character and molded it. Um, he kind of broke that arrogance in me. And I think I came out of there more open to what the journey of life could be. Like it didn't need to have this very fixed plan where I knew where the ending was. I think it just suddenly became more dependent on seeking him for like just the next step and the next step, not planning too far ahead. Kind of saying, well, how can you use me exactly where I am now? So Emma had reached a breaking point in her goal to become a missionary doctor. While her faith was being reshaped during all of this, she had to decide if she'll drop out of school and start working full-time. She was already working part-time at NHS, National Health Services in the UK. And it was actually at that job where she got some advice from her boss that she took to heart. And he just kind of said to me, look, you've got all of these skills, you've got all these capabilities, you're clearly very intelligent. Just don't stay within the NHS because I was thinking maybe transferring and doing like NHS management, hospital management. And he said to me, look, you will always be bitter if you're surrounded by people that are doing what you were trying to do. It's not a healthy environment for you to be in. So he really encouraged me to kind of go into corporate and he said, take the skills you've got. You've got all these. So he really built up my confidence and my abilities. Your boss, who is the neurologist, was like, yeah, you, you don't want to work at NHS, which is like the main hospital. The National Health Service covers every part of medical life in the UK other than private. So, you know, all of the British kind of medical system is managed by the government. So what he, basically by saying it's not like just go and work for a different medical company. It's like saying, leave this profession. This is not good for you. How did you figure out your next step from that? So I'd been working as a medical secretary. So I had like administrative skills and leadership skills that had been developed for a university. And so actually my dad had somebody in the church. He was looking for a sales and an operations coordinator for his company in the UK. But he'd actually said to my dad, do you know anybody? Because I'm really looking to hire a Christian because <laughs> I need somebody that's really trustworthy because it's like handling like petty cash. But you can't put that in a job description, right? It was like heavy industry. And by that, I mean like forklifts, excavators. So we'd be importing like those machines into the UK. Um, and for a, a kind of a dealership network, we'd be selling them uh, out. And so suddenly I was kind of like... In a completely different environment. <laughs> totally different. So the head of sales would be so inappropriate. He would like comment on what I'd be wearing because I was pretty much predominantly just me and the guys. And they're all like engineers, you know, like fixing trucks and mending things and that we'd be getting orders. I had to learn a lot about engineering very, very quickly, but also like managing men and how to manage myself around men. Emma also learned the importance of honesty in her work. For example, one time the company was trying to win a big contract to help create a new runway at Heathrow Airport in London. The sales guy promised the client he would deliver the trucks within 12 weeks, 
But Emma knew that logistically that just wasn't possible. And so she spoke up. So I was going, no, we can't do that. So I gave them a realistic date, which was like four months, five months, something like that. So they go back in, they have this massive argument, but part of it is the sales manager's going, why did you tell them that? And I was like, look, whether they find that now or they find out later, we can't deliver in the timescales that you're promising. But the thing is, if they know now, they can plan. They just need to then rent something for like six to eight weeks. But why can't you just tell them the truth? So we still won the deal. We still got it, but we helped them with that contingency planning and building trust. Actually, in the short term can cause you pain, but in the long term always pays off because they then trust you. So you worked there when you were 25 until how long? Yeah, I did two years. So me and my boyfriend at the time, Robin, we decided we were going to get married. So then we got married. Then they asked me to take over like the head of operations for the UK, which was a big promotion opportunity for me. The problem was it didn't come with a big pay rise or any perks. It just came with huge amounts of work, which I knew I was capable of. When I was negotiating with them, their point was, well, you don't have an engineering degree and you don't have that kind of background. So we think you're capable to do the job, but you don't kind of deserve the pay. And so that never sat right with me. And I just decided actually... There's also very little career opportunity for me to progress. And one of the things I realized is if I was going to make a profession where there were opportunities for advancement, but training as well. Because I think being a kinesthetic learner, I realized training on the job was the best thing for me. Going and doing another degree or another university and trying to get in because of quality was not, I I was burnt out from that kind of trying that way. And so I decided to leave. I got an opportunity to go and work for Barclays. Barclays is a multinational investment bank and financial services company headquartered in London. It was in 2007 that Emma started working there, right when the company was exploring digital payments and transactions. Barclays was also a place where Emma got to go work with her husband, Robin. He was in a technical support team. I was in a sales team. And within a year, we both got promoted. And so we both were in, in this payments group. But actually, it's quite funny. We wanted to have a life that was outside of payments because it can become very immersive and very niche. And also, we realized we had very different opinions about the topic. We then decided to have a rule where we just didn't talk about work at home. So Robin was very happy at Barclay Card and had a great job and felt that that was the right thing for him. I felt like I'd hit my glass ceiling because I had this fear of failure, I think. I'd kind of get to a certain point and then I'd apply for the promotion. And it got to a certain point where I'd kind of applied two or three times. And even when they'd approached me, even not not when I had, but I just didn't get it. And so that started to really eat into my confidence of thinking, is this it? Is this like as far as I'm going to go? By 2012, Emma felt she couldn't advance any further at Barclays. At the same time, there was a lot going on in London with the Olympics on the horizon. So on a work event with Paralympic athletes sponsored by Visa, Emma got connected with Visa folks who are also doing contactless and digital payments and travel. So shortly after, Emma got an opportunity to join Visa as a senior marketing manager. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue on about how Emma Anderson moved up in the payments industry and also how she faced two tough circumstances, a difficult journey through infertility and a shockingly unethical situation at work. Welcome back. 
After several years working at Barclays, Emma ended up moving to Visa, where she had the opportunity to travel throughout Europe as more and more companies were starting to get in on digital payments. Emma was part of growing that widespread acceptance, but that also meant traveling 75% of the time. And by then, Emma and her husband were thinking about starting a family. When I turned 30, that's when we started trying. But, you know, I kind of started to think, well, maybe the amount of traveling I'm doing was definitely having an impact. And so it was starting to worry us. We started to kind of start to get some investigations, but there was no kind of known cause for our infertility. And so one of the things that I thought was very much, well, it doesn't help if you're out a lot of the month and it doesn't help if you've got all that stress and travel. At the same time, Visa was going through some consolidation. And in 2014, Emma realized it was a good time to move on when she was headhunted by Elevon, which is a subsidiary of U.S. Bank. What Elevon did was just up her alley since they were an acquirer that acted as a third party between the bank and the merchant to get authorization for a transaction. U.S. Bank was, had been voted like one of the most ethical banks in the world, something that they was a really high value for me, ethical banking and ethical trading purposes. And Elevon really lived that culture out. I saw it being demonstrated and everybody that I knew that worked there said, yeah, it's a great company to work for. I got the opportunity to build a team to manage people across Europe and um, to be kind of driving that strategy. And I think sometimes when you're a small fish in a big pond, you can you learn a lot, but you don't get to influence a lot. Whereas in Elevon, I, I wasn't like a big fish in a big pond or anything like that, but it, I was part of a team, but I had a lot of opportunity to influence strategy and direction. And I got made of head of international product portfolio. I got to influence the product strategy, decide how we would develop that out. So this is like 10 years after the fact that you had failed your medical degree and in a way you felt like you failed God and your calling. How did you think about where you were in your career and how God saw you? I think I'd kind of matured in my thinking. So first of all, God really loves you <laughs> and he does everything to kind of build that relationship. And so this is not like a father that you've disappointed that is like looking at you with that kind of lens. He wants the best for us. And sometimes that has to take you on a route to change you and change your character and help you grow as a person. You know, I loved and I still love working in payments. It's an industry that fascinates me, but also I get to be working with people, um, getting to change people, and especially in Elevon. One of the things that I loved was not only the ability to influence, it was a place where I was able to mentor others and teach and train and support. And I realized how much I love seeing other people succeed, other people get promoted. Especially after your experience of not feeling like you got promoted, but you did eventually leave. We were continuing our IVF journey um, and kind of got to the point where we realized, well, our fertility journey and realized that actually IVF was the route that we needed to go down. And then at the same time, there was quite a significant thing that happened that really changed my perception of that company. We had a change of CEO and it all suddenly became really about hitting the targets and hitting those revenue numbers. Whereas before with Elevon, you had those targets, but you know, it was more about what does your customer need? And it was very customer and people centric company. And it was almost like overnight, the shift changed and it was all about, don't really care about the customer. You're just there to do your job. That tone changed so rapidly and suddenly we were on calls with people just pushing like, where are you at hitting these numbers? And then there was basically an incident that happened where the management team was put under so much pressure 
by the board in the US to hit a certain like number because the revenues were failing, that they were contemplating um, doing something that to me was completely unethical, which is basically loading an FX rate, which would be invisible to the consumer or to the merchant. They wouldn't see that, but it's basically adding a margin basically on the rate that you buy before you then sell it, but you, it's not transparent. Then you heard the management discuss this. And so what? So everyone was kind of complicit because they didn't want to get yelled at by the US. Did you say something? My friend who was basically in charge of this product had lodged a formal complaint in front of the management team and very much went like the open route within the Elevon company of saying, no, this is not right. We don't want to do this. This is the reasons why. Um, and basically got completely overruled and was told, just do it. And by the management team here, like they basically had, had the pressure, you've got to hit the number. They had chosen that this was the only route they could see to do it. And she just basically got told, just do it. Did she kind of talk to you like, Emma, what should I do? So we'd, we'd actually been friends for like 12 years by this point. We'd actually worked together way back in Barclays. We were then both in Elevon. I was in the meeting where they told her, just do it. Like your complaint's been heard, but this is the only option. You've got to do it. And we kind of left that meeting going, what? Like this, and, and the problem was, is we had so much respect for our leader. We loved working for him. He was a great boss to have. And even the management team, like the entire European management team were people I'd worked with for a long time. I really trusted their judgment. But we were left there going, what has happened? Like, where have their ethics gone? We were always trained to treat customers fairly, like security, value, trust. It's things that are absolutely like the bedrock of payments because you're dealing with something that's so, you know, precious to people. It's money and you've got to do it ethically and transparently. And, and so I felt like I had no choice. I had to go. And because US Bank is a really ethical bank, they have like a really good whistleblowing system in place so that if anybody feels in that position, they have a route to go to. And because I could see that Linda was getting nowhere, I went and kind of executed a whistleblowing exercise, which, which was really difficult because I was basically reporting my boss, all of the leaders that I really respected. I knew it was going to bring so much work on everybody, but I really felt like this was the only way to stop this happening. So the system was like, you just write an email to US Bank, like, hey, this is what's happening. There's an inbox, you know, you get, you, you go through like this third party who manages all the whistleblowing and they assess, you know, the concern. And then if they think it's significant enough, lawyers and investigators are brought in to understand. How did you kind of think through this in your faith? I prayed a lot, but it, it kind of felt that one of the things that, you know, integrity is something that you just can't compromise. Once you do it once, you're more likely to do it again. And I think especially within, you know, you can't call yourself a Christian at work and then not live true to those values by then doing something that's dishonest and underhand or being complicit in it. And I think for me, you know, sometimes when you're in that moment of that pressure cooker and it feels like, you know, just do it. Did it feel like you would lose your job or something would happen? I think it was not so much as losing our jobs. I don't think we were ever worried about that. We were more like, we will leave this company. We would resign. It was more that we wanted to protect the customers. I think at that moment in time, I cared less about my job. It was more about, we just do not want this to go through because I think the long-term implications, if this came out to the reputation of this company and then what it would do for you know our colleagues and our customers, you know, we just have to stop it. The, thing, the good thing was, is that doing the whistleblowing for me was really good because one, I was given anonymity, which I decided to waive because I didn't feel like I was embarrassed by raising it. I felt like actually if people did need to know, 
who had reported it, then I was fine with my name being on there. I didn't want that to be a reason why it wasn't taken seriously. Who were you interviewed by, by US Bank? The HR, the ethics, you know, the, well, lawyers, <laughs> you know, they took it really seriously. And I think the hardest thing for me was I, I told my boss I did it. So before he found out by being called into an interview room, I had to have that conversation with him and say, look, I just need you to know. And he was devastated. One, he was like, I wish you just let me try to deal with it. And I said, we did. And we didn't see you being able to deliver on it. And actually, uh, this was the only way to stop it. Um, and secondly, he was devastated because he realized how much, how deeply he'd failed himself and how deeply he'd failed the team. Um, and to see somebody go through that, to deal with that level of like guilt and shame, but then also work through it. I think I would really have found it harder if I'd had to do it anonymously because I would have felt like it would have been dishonest. That like, you know, I think it was important for my relationship with him that he knew that it, it had been me and why my reasons for calling it out. And we remained really good friends. So it didn't happen. It never went through. And what basically happened was an entire program was put around it. So new procedures, new processes, new barriers so that those kind of rates could not be manipulated or amended. So lots of new additional safeguards were put in place. And also we were able to implement a whole series of processes that would prevent anybody trying to do something like that in the future. So, um, but by that time, my friend who had been managing that product handed in her resignation and left because she just wasn't prepared to kind of work in a company that would even consider doing something like that. The management team, some of them decided they would also leave. But mainly, I think the main thing is we stopped it. We also made them reevaluate. And so then that's when Robin and I started kind of reevaluating, like, what are we doing? And, and then because I was starting to think, I'm not sure this is a company I want to work through, you know, trying to think through my future options. I'd kind of been talking to God a little bit about, I really want to be a mum, but I'm also able to kind of hold that lightly with you because maybe that wasn't, uh, you know, working. And I wasn't sure if I was also just being belligerent, almost like I was at school, you know, where you just kind of go, oh, if I just work harder. And then I really felt like God started to talk to me about like the story of Abraham um, and going into the wilderness and being willing to like follow wherever he leads. I had like this really strong picture of just following God through a desert and, and going on that kind of journey. And I thought God was calling me to be barren as in like saying, it's just not going to work. You know, I've got other plans for you and it's okay. I just completely released it. Like the idea of becoming a mum, I just completely came to terms with it. I was like, okay, well, maybe I've just been fighting for something again that isn't in your will for me. And I just need to kind of relax. And so Robin and I then started to think about, okay, what does that look like? And then I got called for an opportunity for a job um, in Dubai and was like, God, are you really being that literal? Like when, when I felt like he was calling me to the desert, like, is it not? Like you're calling me to be barren. You're actually literally calling me to a desert out in the UAE. Um, and so Robin and I flew out uh, while well, we started having conversations, but we still had one embryo left in the UK. And so Robin and I were like, well, we really didn't want to leave just one embryo like behind if we do decide to make a move. And so I was like, well, we still have the funding. So we just need to close every, like finish that chapter properly. So I just decided, yeah, let's just do that final round of IVF. And two days before we got on the flight to come here for our interviews, I found out I was pregnant, which honestly was the biggest, <laughs> my brain just exploded. I was like, God, what are you doing? Just at the point where I'm about to like fly out of the country and go and interview for this new exciting job. 
And I like, I was so confused. Like, I thought you said I was barren and now you're saying come to the UAE and now I'm pregnant. Like, just do I just not hear you? Do I just not get it when we're talking? With a mixture of feelings, mostly excited and a little confused, Emma flew to the UAE and interviewed for the job. But she ended up feeling like she had to tell the company that she had become pregnant. So they actually offered Robin a job instead. So at the beginning of 2018, he moved to the UAE and I stayed in the UK, continued working for Elevon right up until the point that I had Alexandria in May. God had answered my prayers. He gave me this beautiful baby girl, Alexandria. I want to go back to that clear picture of like that story of Abraham. There's so much to that story. And then I think you were kind of confused, like how do you interpret that into your own life? Now looking back, how would you see why God put that picture so vividly at that moment when you were just so despondent and feeling barren? I think what has encouraged me the most about the story, one, this is the land of Abraham, like this is where I'm living now. He was a man of hospitality and he was open to encountering and meeting people of all different races and cultures and nations. And he learned how to just follow God day by day, step by step. And he didn't always get it right, but in his heart, he was longing to do the right thing to know God. And, and I think for me, like this journey at times, sometimes you're in the wilderness, sometimes you're in the city, sometimes you're in a, a place of blessing, sometimes you're kind of lost again. The point is, is having that daily relationship with God where you're in partnership with him. It's a, it's a real alive it's a relationship where you bring him your cares and your concerns and you ask for his direction. And sometimes it's really clear and sometimes it's really not. And you have to walk in faith with him. But I think um, one of the most exciting things is God does guide you as you're going along. And, and yeah, now you're the head of solutions delivery in Planet Group. That's incredible that you've been able to move up in this industry and um, be in a different market, especially in this time of coronavirus. Everyone's experiencing lots of change in their companies or in industries. How has your industry been impacted by COVID? So I joined a company, they serve hospitality customers. So predominantly all of our systems are in hotels and food and beverage. So, you know, overnight, the revenue fell off the edge of a cliff. We basically serve Starbucks and Costa and, you know, fast food, really high kind of um, speed kind of environments, as well as like luxury hotels. It's all kind of hospitality centric and tourist centric retail, et cetera. And so, you know, overnight, all of that just died. And your revenue as a company is from a percentage of total transactions. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we make our money through the processing of those transactions and also then the services that we offer on top of that. So when people aren't shopping, hotels are closed. When people aren't traveling, aren't using those cards in different countries, then we don't get that conversion revenue. So our industry has been pretty badly hit in that sense. But then other parts of it, which is more reliant on domestic and then online, that's seen a huge surge. Technology has definitely grown. And, you know, just as a mum, when we went into lockdown, the fact that I could order my groceries and have somebody deliver them to my door and pay online, I didn't have to be trying to get cash out. You know, they didn't need to bring a card terminal to the door for me to pay. I could just do that all through online or in app. You know, I was really grateful to be in an industry that was providing those services. Really, our competitor is cash, if you think about it that way, cash and check. And so as things go online, as things become digital, as payments, it's all moving to card-based. 
And as people want to be safe from passing paper stuff right now in this pandemic. Yeah. So our industry has actually expanded. It's just that the customers that we were serving were really hard hit, but that will recover. But because we had diversity within our product portfolio and we had a range of solutions, we were able to. And so we've been um, continuing to grow. Well, it's been an amazing listening to your story, Emma. I learned a lot in, about payments that I've never knew about, um, but also just seeing how God brought you to where you are. Um, is there any encouragement to our listeners who may have wanted to do something growing up or had a view of what they'll do and now they feel like it's not what they can or should be doing anymore? Do you have you know, any advice or any encouragement to say to them? One of the things that my father used to say to me as a child, God only gives you the train ticket once you're at the train station and about to board the train. He doesn't give it to you beforehand because you'll probably lose it. You know, sometimes we want everything ready and packed and on in the backpack, you know, we're all ready to go. Now I'll go. And I, I just don't think that's how it goes. Sometimes you have to take those steps of faith and God meets you as you're walking through it. And it also teaches you to be dependent on him, to, to seek him but it also helps you to not think too far ahead and not plan too far. Like, you know, we're looking for this season and the next day and the next day and, and working it through. So even if you don't think you're in the right place right now or you're not where you want to get to, being able to ask God of, okay, but why am I here? And what is it that you want to teach me in this season? And who is it that you're trying to make because sometimes we have to go through that valley to be ready to deal with the mountaintop later and to be open to him molding you to be more like the person that he's wanting you to be and being open to that is really important. Like some of us, Emma didn't end up doing what she thought she would growing up. In fact, what she is doing today in digital payments wasn't even something that was around when she was a child. As we face changes as society advances or adapts to the new normal after this pandemic, keep in mind how that would impact what you might want to do. Most importantly, don't leave God out of the equation no matter where you are in the season of your career. I want to leave you with the questions Emma asked. Ask God today, in this moment, what is it that you want to teach me in the season? And who is it that you're trying to make me? I'm Grace Huang, bringing you stories that can revive your work week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Faith Collides, please share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by Josh Batson, audio mixing by Josh Batson and Joshua Huang. Thanks for listening. <laughs>